All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be studying Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 34. Last week we began this new series on the Gospel of Mark, and, and I kind of laid out this, this kind of thesis idea that Mark is going to be, as we study the book of Mark, we're going to kind of see this unfolding Gospel way. And today, in Mark 1, 14 through 34, I want to look at uh, what, what I've titled in the, in the bulletin, the way of redemptive authority. So I don't know if you've kind of picked up on that theme in the service. You know, we confessed about Jesus being the king, and we've sung some songs about the kingship and, uh, and kind of authority and power of Christ. And so today I want to look at in this chunk of scripture that that. Jesus, as the Messiah, brings a redemptive authority. And what I mean when I say that is, this authority is redemptive because it is, in fact, both messianic and transformative. And the sermon is going to unpack what that means. And so I want to read the text. I want to pray, and then then we'll get to work here. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Now, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, "Who? What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are Lord of all things. You are Lord of our lives and we are your disciples. You are Lord over the demons. You are Lord over your own revelation. Father, this text points so much to your supreme authority. And yet, Father, we confess that we struggle to live under it. Lord, we don't want to. We reject your authority in so many ways because we sin and and do what you tell us not to and don't do what you tell us to do. So, Lord, help us 
to understand what you want us to learn from this text. Help us to understand what it looks like to live lives under your redemptive authority, Jesus, because you are the Messiah who transforms everything about us. Father, may we hear the goodness of your gospel from this text today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Well, how would you characterize your relationship with authority? I mean, think back on your life, think through your experiences. What kind of relationship have you had? Maybe you've had um, only good experiences. You've only had good, kind, loving parents, great teachers that encouraged you and empowered you. But maybe you're like me and like a lot of people who have had kind of negative personal experiences. You have teachers that have used their authority to be unkind to you. You've had bosses that took advantage of you or abused you. Uh, I would be willing to bet that most of you in this room have a personal experience with somebody in authority over you who did not treat you well. And even if you've never personally had that experience, which I doubt that, but even if you personally have not, you can look at the history of the world and you can see historically there have been examples of people with authority who have done bad things. I mean, just think about the 20th century on its own. You've got Lenin and then Stalin, and then Mussolini, and then Hitler, and then Mao. You, there are men and regimes who have risen up to power who are responsible for the deaths of millions and millions of people. So not only do we have personal history with bad authority, we have historical history with bad authority. And maybe it's not even just that. Maybe you've been academically trained in a little bit of postmodernism. You've read a little Foucault or Derrida, and you've learned that authority is inherently bad because it's oppressive to those who don't have it. And so you have to read those philosophers to learn how to dismantle it and deconstruct it so that the world could be put right. But I would posit that of all those things, you're a personal uh, reason, a historical reason, or even an academic or intellectual reason, that's not really why we struggle with authority. That's not really why we have problems with authority. Our real problem with authority, understanding it and submitting to it, is primarily theological and primarily spiritual. Because you and I were created in the image of God. We are created, and, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We were told to live under the authority of God. But the first thing that we see in the Bible, in, in Genesis chapter 3, is the serpent slides up to Eve and says, did God really say? And so from the very beginning, we see the evil one challenging and subverting the authority of God. And then after the fall, we were infested with sin. We went our own way. We all like sheep turned astray, each one of us going to his own way. And so we want to be our own authority. We reject the authorities that God has rightly put in place. And so it's not because of personal history. It's not because of global history. It's not because of intellectual reasons that we struggle with authority. It's because we are sinful people that don't know how to rightly relate to the authority that God has put in the world. But contrary to that, Contrary to your own personal history, world history, and academics, the gospel presents us with a Messiah, Jesus our King, who comes into the world with a redemptive authority. An authority that is redemptive because He is the Messiah, the one appointed by God to do this thing, and transformative because it changes everything about who you are and the world when you repent and believe in him. So let's unpack that through this scripture, this messianic and transformative authority. 
In verses 14 and 15, when Jesus publicly begins his ministry, there is, a, there is an initial public clash. Now, Jesus begins his ministry after John was arrested. And we learn that in other parts of the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels, that John gets arrested by Herod because he was saying, you know, you shouldn't be having an affair with your brother's wife. And so John, who was the forerunner of Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom, gets arrested because he's clashing with the authorities. And then after that, Jesus comes on the scene, and he came proclaiming the Gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Kids, I want to stop right there. I want to start with you. Kids, how do you know... How do you know somebody is important? How would you know somebody is important, kids? And they would say they were, yeah, because sometimes people need other people to know that. Other thoughts, kids, why? How do you know somebody's important? Any other thoughts? All right, that's fine. Yeah, they might say they were. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He comes onto the scene and he publicly announces in public defiance of the authorities that are, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so what what happens here in this proclamation and announcement is we see those two things. We see the messianic nature of it and we see the transformative nature. You see, when Jesus says... The time is fulfilled. He's not saying that it's 11.10 on Sunday morning and it's time for church. That, that Greek word is kairos. It means time or season. And it, what this means is that the messianic promise of God that the whole Old Testament was pointing to, that time is now. The Messiah is here and he's going to do the work that God has appointed him to do. God's kingdom is breaking into the world. God's rule is breaking into the world. And that's going to set up a kingdom contra to the kingdoms of this world. And to be a part of that kingdom, to be a part of that kingdom, Jesus says this, repent and believe in the gospel. And so to be a part of that kingdom, the whole self needs to be transformed. So this authority that we're talking about is messianic because it happens along the plan of God and it's transformative because repentance and faith are going to be how we come into that. And the first transformative act that we see Jesus doing as his ministry unfolds is this act of calling the disciples to himself in verses 16 through 20. You see, Jesus, as he's in Galilee, passes along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these two sets of brothers, these four guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And he says to them, come, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, these guys were fishermen, as it says in the text, some blue-collar, rough-around-the-edges, uneducated workers, not exactly the kind of people that you would maybe think, these are the people with whom I want to start a spiritual, theological, and global revolution. But there we are, this is how God works. And when Jesus approaches them and he tells them to follow me, what happens? They leave behind everything they knew. They left behind their family, Zebedee stayed there in the boat. They left behind their trade that they had been training their whole life for. They left their nets and their boats. And they left behind their whole way of making a living. And they went to follow Jesus. So this is not repentance in a classic theological sense. Like they're not saying, this stuff is sinful, we're going to follow Jesus. But they really did, in a very real sense, turn away from everything that they knew to go and follow Jesus. And so not only... Does their employment status change? They don't have a job anymore. They don't have a way of making money. 
but their vocation changes. No longer are they going to be casting nets out into the sea, straining to gather fish and pulling them up on the boat and then having that stinky fish smell kind of cover their bodies. No, they're now going to be laboring in a new field. They're going to be fishers of men. They're going to have a new job, a new vocation, and the transformative authority of Jesus does that in their lives. As you, as you listen to this, you, you might kind of hear an echo of Genesis 12 when God says to Abram, get up, go, leave your daddy's house, leave the country that you've known, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. When God enters into your life, everything changes. The disciples are now transformed, and they're empowered with this same message of repenting and believing. If you look at other places in the other Gospels, you see Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. To do what? To preach the good news, to cast out demons. And they do that because when your life is transformed by Jesus, you are empowered with this same message. You see, one key objection, one consistent objection to the Christian faith is that if I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I don't know about that because I'm going to get put in a box. I'm going to get put in a moral and ethical an intellectual box. Tim Keller in his book, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Peter, what is his book? The Apologetics one. Uh, Reason for God, thank you. In, in Reason for God, sorry Peter, I put you on the spot. In Reason for God, that's one of the chapters, right? Isn't Christianity some kind of straitjacket? I don't want to be a part of it. Because when you look at the call of the disciples, everything about them changes, and so people get afraid of that. But here's the thing. You were made for so much more than what the world has to offer. You were made more for more than just being a student, just being a teacher, just being an employee, just being a parent. You were made for more. You were made to be a disciple of Jesus who has everything about you transformed and empowered. You see, there is a, an, an old Puritan thing. I, some people say it was written by a guy named John Bunyan, but I don't, I don't know. But this is what it says. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, coming to Christ does not mean you get put in a box and saying you have to follow every jot and tittle of this rule, or else if you don't, God's hammer of judgment is going to be crushed upon your skull. No, following Jesus... The Messiah, the one who has authority to transform everything, changes everything about you. It bids you fly and gives you wings so that when you are following Jesus, you are transformed and empowered. And so, you're not a disciple. None of you are fishermen by trade, I don't think. But what this does mean for you is that you now, as believers, you now, as followers of this gospel way, have the opportunity and obligation and responsibility to also be fishers of men and women. All right, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to quit your job and become an itinerant evangelist like I wanted to be when I was in college. But what this does mean is that this transforms everything about your current vocation. Let's say, for example, you own a business. You can use that business as a leverage to share the gospel. You have employees with whom you're responsible for. You can love them by paying them on time, by treating them well, and by giving them, if they want to have a Bible study in the office, you can let that happen. Or let's say you're a student. 
you have a wonderful opportunity because you'll never have more time in your life than when you're a college student. Uh, you can go be a Young Life leader. You can do the crazy thing where you leave campus and go hang out with college kids and tell them about Jesus. You can participate in RUF where you can call people to come to Bible studies and go hang out with Peter and learn great um, Bible work and doctrinal stuff. You can share the gospel with unbelievers on your campus. Let me tell you what, people that aren't professional Christians, it is difficult as a pastor to meet non-Christians. We and our family live in kind of a Christian bubble, so we have to be really, really intentional about going out and finding non-believers. But if you work and live in a secular space like a college, you have a wonderful opportunity to go share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus. Now, you might not necessarily be asked to quit your job and to go be a traveling missionary, but God might call you to do that. So I would encourage you, while you understand that your vocation is transformed and you are now not just a student, not just a parent, not just a, a, a homemaker, you're a fisher of men and women, but God might call you to something crazy. I have a really good friend. He was my intern in Charlotte. He was working for a very big and important uh, accounting firm, was on the cusp of becoming a partner and making $300,000 a year. He said, you know, I think God's calling me to go to seminary. So he quit that job. He's married, has a couple kids, has a mortgage. And he's like, yep, I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to be a pastor now. So that is possible, but it's not the only way to have your life transformed and follow Jesus. Because when you follow Jesus, you're submitting every part of yourself, your, your personal, your private life, your public life, your vocation, to follow the transformative authority of Jesus. And the reason... The reason why this authority is redemptive and transformative, one of the reasons is that it is qualitatively and categorically different than any other kind of authority that you could know or encounter. And we see that in the second chunk of the, the text, verses 21 through 28, when Jesus confronts the demons. So Jesus leaves the lake leaves the fishing boats, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he interacts with this crowd and this demon-possessed man. And I want to draw your attention very briefly, again, not so you can win Bible trivia, but so you can read your Bible better. Mark has this way of writing. And literally one commentary I read called it the sandwich technique, um, where it's he, he sandwiches this pericope, this chunk of, of, of story, between the crowds, the demon-possessed man, and the crowds. And what that's doing is that that's highlighting the kind of totality of what's happening, the authority of Jesus, but also drawing attention to that middle section with the demon-possessed man. And so what we see in this section, the first slice of bread on the sandwich, is that Jesus has a categorically and qualitatively different authority than the scribes. So Jesus goes to the synagogue, which is normal, he sits down and he's teaching from the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament. And when he's done teaching, the crowds are amazed. They, they say, they say, um, sorry, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, kids, who is the most authoritative person that you know? Who is somebody that has the most authority that you can think of? The president. Okay, well, there's checks and balances, so he doesn't have all the authority, but that's good. Kids, other thoughts? Most authoritative person you know. Yeah, Eli. God, oh, well, 
Okay. Well done, catechism answer. Any other thoughts, kids? Most authoritative person you know? We got president and God. Those are good answers. Your, oh, your parents. Oh, okay. Yeah. And how do you know? I'm going to go back to my first question. How do you know these people are authoritative? How do you know the president's authoritative? The government says so. Our Constitution says so. But yeah, there are people, there are markers that display authority. When the president travels, do you think he just gets in his Hyundai Elantra and just drives down the street? No, he's got a, a caravan of cool black cars that follow him everywhere. You know, when somebody has authority, it, you can tell, especially when we're talking to somebody like the president. And so when Jesus is teaching, the people listening to him, they know there is something Different, as you young people say, it hit different, his teaching did. And what they're doing is they're comparing the teaching of Jesus to the teaching of the scribes. And now, when we hear scribe, that might kind of, we might glaze over because they're characters that recur in the, in the, in the gospels, particularly the gospel of Matthew. And we understand that a scribe is, is somebody who, who writes. So then you might think of them as like the secretaries of the synagogue. Well, that's not entirely true. They were more important than that. You see, the scribes were kind of a combination of legal authorities, religious scholars, and, and Bible teachers. You might think of um, Ezra in the Old Testament, if you've read the book of Ezra lately. But what happened in the Old Testament was when Israel was exiled and the temple was destroyed, they didn't have a place to gather and worship God anymore. So in Ezra, they go back and they start rebuilding the temple. And Ezra had this responsibility to teach the law of God to the people. And so in the intertestamental period, the scribes, they were recording, they were copying out the law, the word of God, and they were interpreting the word of God and they were teaching the word of God. So they became this prominent kind of authority figures in the community of the Jewish people. And when Jesus teaches in the synagogue, the crowds listen to him. And they, they say to each other, this is different. This man has an authority that is qualitatively and categorically different than the scribes. And then this amazement is followed up with this amazing interaction between Jesus and a man who's in the synagogue who's oppressed by a demon. Now, again, we've probably read that, or if you've read the Bible, you read over that in the Gospels. And just stop and think about how outrageous it is that in the synagogue, in the place of worship and learning, that there's a man oppressed by a demon. And I think that somewhat describes the spiritual state of Israel. But this man confronts Jesus, and he knows exactly who he is. You're the Holy One of God. What have you come to do with me? Are you going to destroy us, This the demon says. And Jesus, Jesus meek and mild, says, shut up. Be muzzled. You know, the, the English is be silent, but the Greek is a little rougher around the edges. Be muzzled like a dog. Do not speak. I will not allow you to speak. Now, here's the funny thing. This was amazing. The crowds were equally amazed as this, as the teaching. But the demon recognized who Jesus was. The crowds did not. The crowds were amazed at this teaching, but they didn't understand that he was Messiah. The demon immediately knew this is the Holy One, the Son of God. You see, when Jesus was teaching, Jesus wasn't just teaching like a scribe as a person. Jesus was teaching as the Word of God Himself. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. 
And then in Luke 24, when Jesus opens the minds of the disciples on, on the way of Emmaus, he under, opened their minds so they would understood everything in the writings and the Psalms and the Old Testament that was about him. Jesus is the focal point of all the scriptures of God. So when he's teaching the scriptures, he's not teaching from personal experience. He's not teaching from a place of academic excellence. He's teaching as the one for whom and by whom the scriptures were written. This authority of Jesus is categorically different than anything else these people had ever encountered. They didn't know who he was. They just knew it was different. But the demon knew exactly who he was. And that's going to be a theme as we go through the book of Mark. The demons are going to recognize who this is. And we see in the book of James that even the demons believe and they shudder. So the logical question is, do you know this messianic authority of Jesus? And so I want you to understand two things about this. Jesus, as Messiah, is Lord of everything, including the demons. Jesus created all things by the word of his power, upholds all things by the word of his power. So all things physical and all things spiritual, Jesus as Messiah is Lord all over all of that. There is not a square inch of anything created that Jesus does not declare. That is mine. And the second thing is, as Messiah, in his own time and in his own way, he reveals himself to his people. So when Jesus is in the synagogue teaching, and he's teaching as one that has authority, different than the scribes, and he's silencing this demon who knows who he is, Jesus is saying, nope, I am God's revelation in action, and that is on the timetable of God, not anyone else. And so, again, we are not in a synagogue. We are in a middle school that is acting as a church. We are gathered together as believers in Christ And so what you need to understand is that Jesus isn't going to walk in that door. But when you open your scriptures, when you open your Bible, this is the word of God for you. This is the word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword cutting to bone and marrow. This is God's revelation, which is about Jesus the word, which was recorded and kept for you and me, his people. To do what? to teach us what we are to believe concerning God, and to teach us how we might operate as his people. So when you come to the Bible, and this is kind of the application of Jesus teaching in the synagogue, I think, that we have the final revelation of God's word recorded for us. We do not need any other revelation outside of this, because this is revelation that's full and pregnant with the authority of God himself. You might read books. You should read books. You should read a lot of books. And these books might come from authoritative sources on a given topic. And you might read books, and you might be intellectually stimulated. You might read books, and you might be philosophically challenged. You might read books, and you might be personally inspired. But there is no book like this book that will cut to your bone and marrow, that when you read this empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit as a child of God, there is nothing that will transform you like reading this in the Spirit of God. So the application here is not to guilt you into starting a Bible reading plan and read the Bible more. That's not the point. The point here is to plead with you to say, 
Learn to eat this. Learn to ingest this. Learn to take this in in any way, shape, or form that you can because this is the thing that is going to transform you. Moms and dads, read this with your kids. Let your kids see you reading this. Model for them what it looks like to ingest the Bible constantly. If you're not a good reader, if your eyes are bad, you have apps on your phone that will read. I got Kristen Getty reading the Bible to me on my phone. There are ways for you to ingest the Bible, and that is God's word to you, for you, so that you might be transformed. A brief story as to why this is important, I think, a historical illustration. Um, Is there a why in Morgantown? You guys know there's not a YMCA? That's fine. Well, the YMCA started at the turn of the 20th century, around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, because um, jobs were in the cities. People were moving away from an agrarian lifestyle to this kind of industrial revolution, so they wanted to work a job at a factory or whatever. And so now there were all these people in one place, and they worked and then they were done working. And so there were men, in particular young men, gathered together that weren't working and didn't have anything to do. And we all know that idle hands are the devil's playground. And so some Christians got together and said, we are going to start a young men's Christian association where we are going to gather together and we are going to give men something to do. They can exercise. We're going to give them places to fellowship and there's going to be Bible study. So YMCA stands for Young Men's Christian Association. If you walked into a Y, are you going to find a Bible study today? Probably not. In fact, they rebranded from YMCA to just the Y. And so in a couple generations, the Word of God was taken out of that organization, and now it's a place where you can go work on your fitness and play racquetball. It's not a place of spiritual formation anymore. And so the Word of God is living and active Because the word of God is God's revelation to us. And so as God's people, I would plead with you and implore you, eat, feast on this revelation that we have in God's word. Because it's all about Jesus. So as this chunk comes to a close... We see first the the calling of disciples, then Jesus healing this man. And then there's kind of this, in in verses 29 through 34, there's kind of this summary of Jesus' ministry activity. And what that's doing, what that's doing, I think for us as the readers, is that we're seeing the God of, of, of all comfort confirming that Jesus is in fact this Messiah that he's called. And so this chunk binds together a couple different things. We see, um, the transformative nature of, of, of Jesus' authority, and we see this messianic nature kind of come together in this one, this one public and private dimension. And in the, the private dimension, Jesus leaves the synagogue, and he goes into the house of Simon and Andrew, uh, and they see Simon's mother-in-law uh, laying ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. Now, this is significant because... Um, again, first century Palestine, hospitality was going to be a key factor. And the, the matriarch of the house, the mother-in-law, was unable to show hospitality. And we don't know exactly what afflicted her, but we sh- should know from, from common sense that it must have been really bad if the mom couldn't get up from the cold. We understand that dads, when dads get colds, you know, we're out. We're laid up on the couch. We've got to watch TV, and we can't do nothing. But if mom gets a little cold, she's just going to go right on trucking. So this had to be a terribly bad fever, a terribly bad affliction for her to be laid out like this. And Simon and Andrew 
tell Jesus about her. And we see Jesus reach out, not with a word, but with his hand, and lifts her up. And she does what? She immediately begins to serve. Now, this is not to say that y'all ladies need to know your place and, and get busy serving the men in the house. No, this is to say that, look, what's happening here in this private home is the same thing that happened a few verses earlier when Jesus called the disciples. When God in Christ calls you, everything changes. You are healed, you are restored, and then you are empowered to serve. And that is exactly what's happening here in the house of Andrew and Simon. So you, as believers, were healed with the gospel, the balm of Gilead. You have an obligation and an opportunity to go and offer that same healing that you've experienced. And not only did this healing happen in private, but when the sun went down at the end of the Sabbath day, when they were allowed to travel, Jesus's, Jesus was being flocked by people, by crowds from the cities. They had heard about his teaching. They had heard about his healing the demon, and they wanted to be a part of this. And what Mark is doing here is he's painting, he's painting this transformative and messianic picture of who Christ is and what he's doing. You see, if you read in the book of Isaiah, the prophet of Isaiah, there's a, there's a, there's a picture of the Messiah. There's a picture of what God is going to do when the time is fulfilled in that eschatological time when he is determined that his Messiah was going to be one who heals. And people, the crowds, the nations were going to flock to him. And so what we see here in the Gospel of Mark is a small echo back to that prophetic work in Isaiah where the Messiah was going to be a healer and he's going to be one that people flock to. And so Jesus, in this summary element of his ministry, is the one, the promised one, the messianic one, the one who is going to make all things new, the one who is going to bring God's rule and reign on this earth and for eternity. And it's right and it's, and it's reasonable to read this and ask the question, well, what about everybody else? What about the ones Jesus didn't heal? Because Jesus surely met people that he didn't heal. But this is the revelation that God has given us. This is what has been recorded. So what about the other people? And, and here's where we're kind of going to start landing the plane. And we have to understand that Jesus as this redemptive authority figure, didn't just come to call disciples and to heal people and to cast out demons. Lots of rabbis had disciples. There were other miracle workers happening. People were getting healed. But that's not just why Jesus came. See, those were the fruits of his messianic ministry. Those were the proofs of his messianic ministry. Those are the things that we can, we can read and we can know. Yeah, truly, you are the Son of God. But you see, Jesus didn't come just to do that. He came in not to boss people around. He came in to usher this, this kingdom, this new kingdom of God by his life and death and resurrection. And he's not going to be the big bad boss doing that. He's there to take people with him. He's there to take people with him. And where did he go? Well, he, friends, he went to the cross. The whole gospel way, the whole way of redemptive authority is a way that leads up to and climaxes in the cross, in the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus went and he laid down his glory, even more glory he laid down than when he was incarnate as a human. 
He laid down his glory. He laid down his authority. And he allowed himself to be crucified by the Roman government. He allowed himself to be under the authority of a worldly power. And he even allowed himself to die and be under the power of death for a time. The king of all the universe walked this way to accomplish this goal. To come and live and die. Why? Because that's what it took to usher in God's kingdom. That's what it took for your sin and my sin to be forgiven. That's what it took to give you healing and me healing. That's what it took to give you life and me life by repentance and faith in Christ. You see, on the cross, all of our rebellion, all of our problem with authority, all of our acting outside the authority of God, God had wrath against that. And he poured that out on Christ so that we would not have to experience it. So we could be redeemed and forgiven and live this life filled with the Spirit because Jesus didn't just stay dead. And this is the ultimate messianic proof because he allowed himself to be under the power of death for a time, but in glory he was resurrected so that he might have authority over even death itself. And if you believe in Jesus, you are filled then with the Spirit, empowered with that same resurrection power. When you become a believer, there's, that's the first resurrection. You go from death to life. And so you have a first resurrection as a follower of Jesus where you are transformed under that messianic power filled with his spirit. And so you can then repent and believe as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. You can then go and minister and say to other people, repent and believe because that's what God calls us to do. So I don't know what your relationship with authority is like. I don't know what your relationship with the church is like. Because a lot of times when we think about church and religious authority, we think about, I don't know, um, corrupt institutions, people that have tax-exempt status that maybe shouldn't, um, political engagement that seems inappropriate at times. You might even be really historical and think about the, the real abuses of the Roman Catholic Church in, in the medieval times. But when, when you think about church today, I would urge you, don't think about the authority of the church in, in those senses. I want you to think about the church and the authority of the cross. Because it's in the cross that we have the authority to say, as elders in the church, that me, Ed, Brian, and John, that on the cross you were, you were forgiven. Because we have that recorded for us in God's word. And so the authority of the cross is the authority that we proclaim the same way Paul says, we want to proclaim nothing but Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and him crucified for you as it was written according to the scriptures. See, the the cross and the resurrection, they're the final proof of that redemptive, messianic, and transformative power. And here's the wonderful, funny thing, is that the cross looks stupid. It looks foolish. It looks like weakness in the eyes of the world. And the world will never understand a power that came to die for other people. You see, if you think back of those bad experiences you've had with, with people in authority, or you think back on the Lenins, Stalins, Mussolini's, Hitler's, Mao Zedong's. You see, these were men who, who thought power, these were people who thought power was used to control, to command and to control and to advance their own agenda and glorify themselves. Power in the world is going to seek to control others and preserve its own interests. But the redemptive authority of the gospel, the redemptive power of the gospel, seeks not to glorify you, ultimately, but the one who made you, 
Jesus, the King of Kings. And so what I want you to know and, and take away from the sermon is that the redemptive authority of Jesus doesn't come to keep you in line as a Christian. Jesus didn't come and die to keep you in line. Jesus came to come and die and be resurrected so that you might be living in the power of the Spirit. And so when you walk this gospel way, when you follow Jesus as your Messiah, you are transformed and redeemed by the power of the Spirit to go and live like no one else in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to come live and die and be resurrected so that we might, by the power of your Spirit, be forgiven and walk in the newness of life. Father, that's difficult at times. It's not easy. We, we struggle with indwelling sin. We, we struggle with, with wanting to be seduced by the ways of the world. But Lord, we ask that, that your goodness and your grace and your mercy would be magnified in our hearts and minds so that we would know that we belong to you, that we would know that we are empowered by your Spirit to do what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to know that the gospel bids us to, to come and fly. But it doesn't just tell us to do that. It actually gives us the wings that enable us to do that by the power of your Spirit. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.